You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of Special Reports on Legal Talk Network. This is Lawrence Coletti and I'm the host for today's show, which is being recorded on location at the American Bar Association's annual meeting in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, we're here to cover this event and its highlights for you, our listeners. Joining me now, I have three guests. I'm going to start uh, to my left. I have uh, the moderator of the speaking event, Benjamin E. Griffith. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Larry. Thank you. And uh, right next to him, I have uh, Mr. Robert Heath. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. All right. Welcome to the show. And uh, next to him, I have uh, Miss Nancy uh, Abudu. Did I pronounce that right? That's correct. And also happy to be here. All right. Thank you. Thank you for coming. And so the speaking event I was mentioning earlier was called Election Laws Impacting the Upcoming 2016 Election. But before we get into that, I'd like to learn a little bit more about you. And ladies first, uh, Nancy, would you mind telling me about yourself? Where do you work and what do you do? Sure. So I am the legal director for the ACLU of Florida. I am based in our Miami office, but we also have offices in Pensacola, Jacksonville, and in Tampa. Voting rights is one of the issues that we cover, but we also work on criminal justice, immigrants' rights, reproductive rights, education law, et cetera. Okay. And Robert, how about yourself? Well, I'm a partner with firm of Bickerstaff Heath, Delgado, Acosta in Austin, Texas, and we represent, well, we do a lot of things, but we do a lot of election law, and I generally represent governments, local governments, sometimes the state government, uh, dealing with election law uh, issues. Okay. And Mr. Griffith, how about yourself? Uh, Yes, I'm the principal in Griffith Law Firm. It's in Oxford, Mississippi, uh, about... Three years ago, I had uh, finished about 40 years with a family law firm in Cleveland, Mississippi, in the Delta. Uh, the work I've done mostly over the last four decades has primarily been in the election law and voting rights field, a lot of civil rights defense, uh, institutional defense, and in what we would call in, uh, insurance defense. Uh, the area of voting rights litigation, though, has just been fascinating to me since about 1980. And I cannot think, and I think Bob is probably the same way, I cannot think of a year that has gone by when there's not been something involving election law on the docket that we've been involved in. Okay. And what happened in 1980 that got you involved? Well, there was uh, something called Congress. And uh, (laughs) they got upset at a decision called Mobile versus uh, Bolden. And basically, that was a case that said you have to prove intentional discrimination to prevail in a Section 2 vote. Uh, dilution case, and Congress took it upon themselves to start hearings in 80 and 81 and culminated in the 1982 amendments that created a new form of Section 2. Section 2 became the what we call the vote dilution uh, provision, the results provision. If there is a discriminatory practice that results in a diminution, uh, diminution or a reduction or an impairment of voting rights on the part of minorities, uh, under the totality of circumstances, the jurisdiction can be held liable and be basically made to do it over again or have the court redo the electoral process system or practice, usually a redistricting plan. I got involved in those on a heavy basis. Now, uh, Bob's practice is, uh, has been uh, a lot more detailed and a lot more in-depth in that very field, but it's uh, been one where I've been looking to lawyers like him for guidance for many years, and it's been fascinating. It's been a good ride. 
Okay. Well, admittedly, I don't know a lot about election <laughs> laws. And so uh, we embrace challenges at Legal Talk Network. And I saw your uh, speaking event. Uh, again, I'm going to bring it up. Uh, election laws impacting the upcoming 2016 election cycle. I definitely like to follow politics. I find it very interesting. The candidates uh, back and forth and the points that they make in the debates I find very interesting. And so I was like, well, we've got to do this one. And uh, I figured I'm probably not alone in uh, lawyers that uh, don't know a lot about election laws. So if you guys wouldn't mind, could I get a volunteer uh, to just give the 50,000-foot explanation, and then let's dig in with some details. The big issue is often are minorities being treated fairly okay. by the jurisdiction, whether it's a city, county, or a state. Uh, is the congressional districting plan, is the legislative districting plan that oftentimes every 10 years is going to have to be redrawn to comply with the uh, one-person, one-vote standard. Is that fair? Uh, does it split up minorities in an unfair way to fragment their vote, their voting power? Does it combine them and press them into a small district to get them out of the way? Uh, there are technical, technical labels for that, but these are all uh, different systems and means by which uh, deprivation of the right to vote can, can happen. And it's, it's, these cases, uh, amazingly, are every time I've seen one, they're amazingly unique. Each case is uh, decided on its own facts. And if you have a good handle on civil rights, uh, an understanding of civil rights laws, the, the morphing of your thought process into voting rights is just a matter of sharpening the focus. Okay. But, and it, it's a good part of it, and I think both of our uh, other guests will agree. It brings you into contact with some of the brightest minds on the plaintiff and the defense side, as well as some of the, the best courts in the country who consider these types of cases some of the most difficult. Okay. Yeah. And another thing about that is that uh, particularly in the ones about representation, districting and such, it involves uh, the disciplines of demography because you're looking at people by ethnic group, race, etc., cetera, uh, and what's happening uh, demographically uh, in a lo locality, uh, and also political science. You have political science experts uh, who can tell you how different groups voted and what the voting patterns are. So uh, you get these two uh, disciplines in there uh, as well as uh, the legal issues. All right. Well, actually, we have some uh, surprise additional guests joining us. I was getting ready to ask another question, but uh, we have joining us uh, Miss Tanya Clayhouse and uh, Miss Nicole Austin Hillary. So just like everybody else, I wanted to learn a little bit more about you before we proceed. So where do you work and what do you do? And so, Nicole, we'll start with you. Thank you. Uh, I'm the director and counsel of the Washington office of the Brennan Center for Justice. Okay. The Brennan Center is a national legal advocacy think tank. We're affiliated with New York University School of Law, and we engage in advocacy, litigation, research, and strategic communications to try to do what we call fix those broken parts of our systems of democracy and justice. So we work on issues as wide-ranging as voting rights, criminal justice reform, liberty and national security, money and politics, uh, judicial reform, and a few things in between. Great. And, uh, and Tanya, how about yourself? Sure. I'm the public policy director at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. And the Lawyers Committee was formed at the behest of President John F. Kennedy back in 1963. And our mission is to eliminate racial discrimination and protect our nation's civil rights laws, particularly uh, for African Americans and communities of color. So which means essentially that I work on, it's easier to say what I don't work on. Um, as a, Primarily, I am the chief uh, liaison with uh, the administration and Congress, working across all issues, including voting rights, education, immigration reform, criminal justice, and a variety of other issues. 
Okay. Well, now, ladies, before you walked in, uh, we're, I was getting ready to ask a question about redistricting. So um, I think for a lot of us, I'm, I'm fairly new to election law policies and things like that. And I wanted to learn about it. And it fascinated me when I saw it in the agenda for ABA uh, annual meeting. And so I definitely wanted to embrace this challenge and learn more about it. So redistricting. And you were talking about demographics, Ben, earlier. And uh, for me, as, as a business guy, um, I, demographics mean marketing to me, marketing opportunities. And I guess we're talking about marketing opportunities for politics. And so walk me through how, why, why does redistricting happen? Because it seems like, you know, you have, a, you have an address for every house where people live that's permanent and fixed. Why are we redistricting? Like, so how does that happen? Let me give a technical answer and then uh, one that may be a little humorous. Okay. <laughs> the technical answer is every 10 years we have a decennial census of our population okay. that gives a, a very good detailed picture of the American population, not just racially, but from uh, ethnicity, from the standpoint of provision of services, homes, rental homes, cars, everything that goes into the uh, demographic picture and makeup of an American family. Uh, This is data that is in turn released usually in about February of the year following the census to state and local government entities. They, at the same time, have to analyze that data and look at their existing election districts, uh, often for cities and counties, Most of the time today, you see these in single-member districts. Let's say a typical county would have five single-member districts. The new census data comes out, and the the city or county looks at it immediately and says, oh, these are not equal in population. One may be three times the size of uh, another. And you've got that inequality of population, which, according to over 50 years, 55 years of precedent the U.S. Supreme Court has held cannot exist. You cannot constitutionally allow an imbalance in population. Uh, Nicole's vote uh, cannot be worth 10 percent of what my vote is. There's an inequality that dilutes her voting strength. So we have that phenomenon taking place every 10 years. And so cities, counties, state subdivisions, and states themselves, um, everything from legislative districts to congressional districts to city aldermanic districts, all have to look at realigning those single-member districts to keep them as close to equal in population as possible within about a 10% variation. Uh, That in turn, given the fact that we do have a Voting Rights Act of 1965 that was enacted after uh, great toil uh, and a lot of effort in the U.S. Congress, but it was uh, officially the law of the land after 1965, uh, that is superimposed on all of this. And it basically says, if you're going to do anything to change your election practices, your election procedures, anything from moving a polling place to changing the district alignment, uh, you need to, for particularly for those states that were southern states, and the earlier version of it, you would need to come to the Justice Department or to the federal court in Washington and get it uh, approved ahead of time. Pre-cleared was the technical term. That was the regimen uh, and pretty well the the method by which we all operated up until about um, two years ago. Uh, I don't want to get too deeply into the historical precedent, but as it exists now, uh, we still have, every 10 years, um, a decennial census. We still have single-member districts that are altered by virtue of population shifts and people moving. America's a very mobile society. And we still have some jurisdictions that, whether intentionally or just through disregard of, of fundamental precepts, do not pay attention to uh, the fact that uh, certain districts may be uh, malapportioned 
uh, to the extent that they have to sometimes be sued in order to make those changes. That is, it's a very dynamic process. Uh, it's not a one-size-fits-all, and uh, oftentimes the courts will say when they're dealing with these types of changes, particularly in different parts of the country outside of the South, uh, a different dynamic may be involved. But the courts are generally going to look at it in terms of fairness. There needs to be a fair, uh, fundamentally understandable measuring stick of equality, uh, equality of effectiveness of votes. Uh, it's a subtle concept, and it's one that some jurisdictions have to have hammered into their head. But it's, it's one that I think the courts have, have struggled with and have defined uh, more precisely, I think, over the decades. Okay, so um, a couple questions here. So it sounds like uh, districting and redistricting affects local politics a little bit more than national politics, correct? Well, except that redistricting does impact who goes to Congress. I mean, right. those, the okay. way those districts yeah, are drawn, right. that's how you then determine mm-hmm. how many representative, how many seats you get for Congress, and and then how those lines are drawn uh, with respect with respect to the population that will then vote for their congressional members. Okay, so mm-hmm. is the issue more along the lines that there's not enough redistricting? So over time, you get these uh, these imbalances that need to be rebalanced. Is, is, so is that the, kind of the primary gripe that, that everybody has? Is that there's not enough of it? or walk me through that a little bit. Now, there are multiple issues that often come up uh, when you're talking about redistricting. One of them is packing, uh, particularly packing of certain communities uh, within one particular district. And for uh, the benefit of... For the benefit of another community um, and or a political party. It depends and what you're... It depends on what what you're talking about. And there are a variety of cases that have been brought based upon this issue, this, this concept of what often is considered gerrymandering um, in order to create um, a benefit uh, for either a, a, one particular party versus another or one particular community versus another. So, for example, when you're talking about race uh, within the Voting Rights Act, Vote dilution is particularly of a concern, uh, and this concept of packing is what is uh, often at issue uh, when we're talking about uh, the dilution of minority voters. Uh, and so what you typically might see, uh, what is often challenged under the Voting Rights Act under Section 2, is the dilution of minority voters within one particular district because they're being packed into one district, and therefore they're not going to have equitable representation and opportunity to elect a a representative of their choice in other districts as well. And so there's different ways in which um, this concept plays itself out, Um, but that's the general kind of uh, underlying basis for what we're talking about when it comes to race. Yeah. So uh, does this happen a lot in cities where you're starting to see recentralization? So uh, you know, back in, like, I guess, the, the 50s and 60s when there was a little bit more emphasis on suburbs. Now people are moving back into the central mm-hmm. locations of the city. Is that something where, is that how packing can occur when you have people moving back into an area and then what was once perhaps one demographic becomes infused with additional demographics? Is that is that what we're talking about? Well, packing typically is is used to talk about a deliberate effort to draw the districts to put like-minded voters together Uh, and to do so to disadvantage somebody else. And give you an example, and this is a partisan example, Uh, the Democrats uh, in Texas controlled districting, and this is back in the 70s, and they drew a district, congressional district in Houston, where they put all the Republicans they could find. So it was a very heavily Republican district, but that let them 
draw Democratic districts for all the rest because the Republicans were all packed. Uh, and by the way, that elected George H.W. Bush, uh, and that was when he was a congressman. And so packing is, is drawing the districts, and, and I mentioned the Democrats doing it, and now there have been efforts where uh, Republicans in recent uh, Supreme Court cases have taken African Americans, put as many of those as they could in a district because those are reliable Democratic voters, so it makes it easier to uh, elect Republicans in other districts. So it, it's not limited to one party or the other. This is really fascinating to me as I'm learning about it. So it, both parties have access to districting, redistricting. And so this is just my head spinning over here. So what, like you said, the, uh, the Democrats did it back in the 70s in Texas. And I would imagine, you know, other parties are doing it in different cities to a different degree. So how is the control for districting, redistricting determined? Well, the, the control is who has the city council or the state legislature or whoever the redistricting body is. Uh, and that's why recently Republicans, I think, have been very uh, successful in their redistricting efforts because 10 years ago, 15 years ago, something like that, they made a big effort to elect people to state legislatures and to state governor positions. Uh, and in doing so, then you get control of the districting process so that they had a very successful redistricting uh, because they had electoral success at those local levels. And the Democrats would like to do the same thing. But uh, in Democratic states, the Democrats are going to control it and they're going to do things that are more favorable to Democrats. Republican states, the Republicans are going to take advantage of the Democrats. And, and I'll just add that as a result of this type of, of the redistricting efforts that took place, um, that is why you hear oftentimes people, particularly in D.C., saying that not much is going to change anytime soon because we have a situation in which members of Congress have been elected through um, districts that have been created for them for years to come, such that it would be very difficult to unseat incumbents as a result of the redistricting efforts that took place. Uh, so that has been an ongoing challenge and something that many people have been, you know, cons you know, deliberating over as a result of what has happened in the past, you know, decade. And I think you saw one of the um, concern, you know, a major concern that was raised uh, during the 2010 elections was not just that people did not go out and vote after you had the historic election in 2008 of President Barack Obama, but that many knew and understood the uh, consequences of not having people vote in 2010, which then dramatically changed the state legislatures at that time, who were then going to be uh, responsible eventually for this type of new redistricting that's going to take place. Right. Two points on this. The biggest complaint that I'm hearing is that through years and years of uh, manipulating of boundaries through a gerrymandering process, political gerrymandering, we have destroyed or at least reduced to an ineffectual state the competitiveness in congressional districts and legislative districts. And I think voters get so turned off mm -hmm. when they, they feel that the uh, there's not really a competitive process at mm -hmm. play anymore. Now, back to gerrymandering that we, uh, we mentioned, uh, it goes back a couple of hundred years to Eldridge Jerry in Massachusetts, who gerrymandered the first district. <laughs> the, the, the local newspaper drew a picture of a snake with his head at the face of it. Oh my goodness. And it, that was where the term gerrymander 
because it looked like a salamander. Oh, okay. Gerrymander <laughs> came into being. But it, it has the same insidious effects. And I think one of the worst is we don't have yet a, a, a clean solution in our courts for political gerrymandering. And the courts just seem to mm-hmm. have disempowered themselves. And I'm talking about the U.S. Supreme Court, mm-hmm. Davis versus Bandemer and the Vieth uh, versus Jubilee case. They're, they basically said that that's an area that we just can't decide if there's a discernible standard to intervene. And uh, in the process, we lose competitiveness of our districts. Okay. And I would just want to add that while packing definitely has been a tool when it comes to political gerrymandering, another term that we have is cracking, where you have tra- mm-hmm. communities that traditionally mm-hmm. have been part of of yeah. a district and they have a lot of mm-hmm. issues that make them a community of interest and yet they are dispersed oftentimes around certain areas to make it and essentially creating or converting them into political pawns for either political party mm-hmm. and I think minority communities in particular and in Florida where we actually have a lawsuit involving our congressional mm-hmm. plan are especially vulnerable and so even though African Americans have been seen traditionally as reliable Democratic voters. We also have studies that show that unfortunately Democrats do not support minority candidates in the same way that African Americans and other minorities can rely on them for purposes of not creating their own district that will ensure their ability to elect candidates of choice. Yeah, and I think that brings up uh, the another point. We've talked about political gerrymandering, how that is not something that's uh, you have a legally cognizable cause of action to 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 challenge, but what you can challenge is racial gerrymandering in the sense of if you draw districts by packing, cracking, some other way that disadvantages protected minorities under the Voting Rights Act, then there is a cause of action. You can go to court, and that's where these cases come up. It's because African Americans, Hispanics, perhaps Asian Americans are being discriminated against in uh, the electoral process. And that, that's, that's where we go into court and defend or bring these cases. Okay. Well, this uh, you know, we're pretty big on solutions here at Legal Talk Network, and uh, we had some <laughs> fine minds in the room, uh, everybody expressing themselves and their uh, studies and viewpoints. And so what did you guys come up with any solutions for this and how to uh, reverse this everything? process? What's that? Did we fix everything? Mm-hmm. That what you're yeah. <laughs> did, did, did you guys fix it? I mean, I know. Let me you throw, had the whole week. Yeah. Did you let, fix me, it? let me throw this out, Larry. I, I moderated it, so I got the pleasure of lis- <laughs> listening to all of them. But from all of the voices that I heard, from most of the voices that I heard, what I, I got out of this is when we communicate, when we sit down at the decision-making table, when we're able to share ideas, and there's that give and take in the democratic process, little d, uh, then um, that's stuff I, I deal with on an international scale. Then I think you develop not just camaraderie, but you develop more of a we are in this together attitude. And I think that does more. I'm coming from a jurisdiction in the South that was 65% African American all of my life. That's the Mississippi Delta. My congressman is African American. Uh, we have more black elected officials in my home county than any other uh, county in the state of Mississippi. And Mississippi's got a sordid a sordid racial past, but it's one that we have put faith in and trust in uh, African-American elected officials and white elected officials alike, that in many of these jurisdictions, it seems to be working. It comes down to communication, openness, and transparency. Wow. I learned a lot. There you go. 
<laughs> no, this is interesting. You know, I, I, like I said, I didn't have a lot of experience with this, but uh, this has been very enlightening. So, uh, you know, obviously this is going to continue on. Uh, we've got uh, quite an election cycle uh, coming up here. But uh, I wanted to close out by uh, uh, asking you guys to, to, to leave uh, some contact information for our listeners. I, you know, I, the ABA is wonderful to get involved with. And we've got lawyers out there. And as I've, as I've come to learn through every time we cover one of these events by the American Bar Association is that there's so many attorneys out there that are very passionate and uh, you know probably looking for an avenue to get involved so I'd like to open the floor for uh, how our listeners could follow up with you and so you know what uh, since you were uh, late joining us Nicole uh, I wanted to give you the first up sure um, folks can get in touch with me and my organization by going to our website which is brennancenter.org b-r-e-n-n-a-n center.org and the Brennan Center is very focused on um, election uh, reform uh, and voting reform uh, efforts uh, as we move into the 2016 election so for individuals who are very interested in that I would encourage them to go to our website and, and learn more about what kind of reform efforts are underway Excellent. And Tanya? Sure. Uh, you can get in contact with me as well at our website at lawyerscommittee.org. That's all one word, lawyerscommittee.org. And I'd also encourage anyone who is interested in this work and interested in protecting the right to vote to engage with the Lawyers Committee and the rest of our civil rights organizations, including the Brennan, ABA, um, many others, on our election protection effort. And you can find out more information on their website, but you also can go to electionprotection.com uh, in order to find out more information. We have a 1-800 number. Uh, and that is something that is available throughout the election that provides necessary information for those who are attempting to engage in the electoral process. So I encourage people to engage with election protection, uh, with the Lawyers Committee, and to uh, help us all to protect everyone's right. Give them the number. Uh, yes. It, yeah. <laughs> it's one eight six six our vote Again, one eight six six O O U R V O T E. And don't ask me what the numbers are again right now because <laughs> I'll remember it after I leave this radio station. But one eight six six our vote, and you can always uh, call there if during the election, in particular, it's answered live right now. If you don't get a live person, uh, definitely leave a message and return your call within twenty four to forty eight hours. Great, and then uh, Ben, sorry, and Ben, <laughs> uh, my email address is Ben at G Law. Miss. That's G-L-A-W-M-S dot com. Website is glawmiss.com. Pretty simple. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm also an officer in um, the ABA, uh, House of Delegates. And I'm on the third um, edition of America Votes, uh, a modern guide to election law and voting rights. And two of my authors are seated to my left, Nancy, Nancy and Bob. <laughs> okay. Um, so among the 19 chapters, they'll be actively involved in the third edition. Four, 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 of, four of your offers. Four. 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 Uh, seminar program this afternoon, uh, have given presentations to the American Bar Association, some to other entities that I'm involved in, and uh, I was not dealing with strangers, and that was the lovely part of this. Uh, and it was it was a very good, robust process to have them all participate in the level at which they did, which was high. Great. And Bob? My email is bheath, B-H-E-A-T-H, -E -A -A at Bickerstaff. B-I-C-K-E-R-S-T-A-F-F 
dot com, and my law firm uh, web address is bickerstaff.com. Excellent. Last but not least, Nancy. Sure. ACLU.org is our website where you can find more information about the work we do when it comes to voting rights, which also includes among the issues we discussed already, student voting rights, as well as the issue of felon disfranchisement and the number of people who are completely locked out of the ballot box because they have a criminal conviction. Excellent. Well, this has been another edition of Special Reports. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.